Well, hi everyone, it's Mark Stenson, and welcome back to Unlocking Your World of Creativity, the podcast where we like to interview people from all over the world, talk about their creative talent, where they get inspired for some of their original thinking, and then some of the tools and exercises and processes they might use to organize their ideas. And most of all, of course, make the connections, talk about the opportunities to publish, record, market, promote, to get it out into the world. I'm so glad today to have as my guest, Jude Warren. Jude, welcome to the program. Thank you. Jude is a, uh, what I think is the greatest title ever, a rock biographer. And she's written long and short form pieces about Bruce Springsteen, Steely Dan, Procol Harum, the band and the Yardbirds. Specifically today, we want to talk about your new book, Jude, America the Band, an authorized biography. Thank you. Glad to be here. Unlocking your world of creativity with Mark Stinson. guest Jude Warren, the music journalist. He's written for publications like The Observer and Film International, as well as online publications like The Vinyl District, Live for Live Music, and No Depression. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for being on the program. Me too. Excited to be here. Well, Jude, uh, this idea that you write for bands, and you mentioned, I think, in the introduction of the America book, you know, that it's not about nostalgia or trying to be, you know, a fan of the music and just write about the good parts. You're really, truly reviewing and uh, talking about the life and times of the artist. How is that fine line for you, though, to be a fan of the musician, but also critique the work? Uh, well, it's interesting. And just to consider the the idea of, of writing something that's authorized, like you mentioned, versus unauthorized. It was great for me in this case, because I got to work with the band and have their cooperation. So I had theoretical full access to them in terms of just getting to interview them about all different parts of their lives and different albums that they've worked on. And that was really great for me, especially since there is, other than Dan Peake, the third member of the band who had written his memoir about his version of uh, an experience being in the band, there wasn't another book about America. So this was that what I consider to be the first, the first tome on it that takes the, takes the story through to present day because Peak had left in 77, and then the band, of course, they continued on since then. That's a long time. So the fact that it was a bit of uncharted territory writing-wise, I felt grateful to be able to go to Jerry and Dewey of America and get to know from them their version of what had happened and, and to rely on that for historical fact that was really helpful otherwise it, <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. know it would have been interesting yeah exactly well and a lot of stories up front about how the band was formed you know how they met each other so many of these coincidences and i guess as you read a lot of the history of so many bands and duos and how they got together were there some surprising aspects to you about just how they got together yes and like you mentioned before, I take point to, to note that it's not this version of, of the biography of the band is not nostalgic in part because I'm, I'm a younger person and I wasn't there the first time around when most of these songs were released in the 70s and stuff. So I liked that idea of it not being so, for me, interlaced with personal memories and more just trying to be a bit of a, from a historical perspective, ideally objective, but I don't think anything can totally be objective. But in terms of surprising elements of, of me learning about their their story, 
I think what I one of the elements that I was most captivated by, which is not necessarily one of their main points that's always mentioned in, in the basic facts of their story, is in the 80s when they really turned their attention away from recording, making studio recordings uh, after their album Perspective in 84 and got really into touring and, and focused on that and honed that into a really successful version of, of a, a rock tour. And they still continued that through decades later. And I think they jumped on that before a lot of other bands really realized that touring was a bit of the way of the future when CD sales, when CDs came out, of course, but when album sales dropped in terms of, in contrast to how it was in the 70s and 80s when, when it was a good time to be selling records. So that part of their story and the bit of the, not dark period, but just a bit of a lower period when they were getting that together in the mid 80s is interesting to me. It's mentioned in the book how they played some lower level clubs and venues like they played a bowling alley one time which i think is so funny or just interesting in that you know they had been playing arenas and stuff um and now they play bigger places too but just they had a bit of a low point during that period and they got it together and that they're still together today that they there's this successful touring act i think is so great and in a way they had they had to pay their the band had to pay their after they made it big where a lot of this one of the quintessential versions of the rock artist stories, working your way up and playing these small places. And then after a couple of years, ideally, you know, getting it following together and then you reach more of a successful point. But they had success so quickly when Horse with No Name came out in 72. And then so they didn't really have to pay their dues up front so much. And they, in my opinion, ended up doing that later. So I was surprised by that and found it very interesting. clubs usually happens before you hit it big right almost right. a rebuilding did they, did they find that sort of personally humbling or was it a dark period how did they feel about it it's interesting i mean yes they they didn't necessarily call it a dark period they seem to be very go with the flow type type guys so the way we discussed it together didn't sound like this shock sort of sort of moment and i think too because their intense success right off the bat they had been getting used to the fact that, you know, you couldn't necessarily release a Horse With No Name level single every album, every time. You couldn't necessarily keep up those extremely high numbers in that way. Although they had some really big hits, of course, after that in the 70s, The Sister Golden Hair, Ventura Highway. And then in early, in 82, in the early 80s, they had You, you Can Do Magic, which was a huge hit again for them. But in terms of, they, they always seemed to be humble, tight people, laid back and they're still like that today, I think. But it was more just interesting as a as a plot line, I think, in their in their viewpoint. Yeah. Well, thinking about the uh, the craftsmanship of writing this book and probably other long form articles about artists, did did you chose this 
undertaking, right? Nobody came yes. to you and said, we want to commission <laughs> you to write this book. But right. I mean, you, you chose the topic. Did you have a process going in? You said, I think this is how I'll do it. And you stuck with that or what, what modifications, if at all, did you have to make along the way? Yes. Well, as you say, I did feel very, um, when I first got the idea for writing this book and it, it rolled along for a while, I mean, I mulled it over, but um, I did feel very determined to do it. I felt like I was the right writer to tell their story, America's story, which is not the um, typical wild rock tale. It's a bit more tame and steady, which some readers I know like, like shock material, which I know can be fun, but this story would always be a bit more academic, milder, easygoing, kind of like their music, I think. And I thought that's more of the kind of person I am. And I like focusing on art in that way, not necessarily through, through a dark lens, but into the injecting myself into the positivity element of it, which they have a lot of kind of like, the, I mean, the Beatles catalog was like that too. They remind me of each other in that peace, love, happiness way, um, the catalogs of both bands. Mm -hmm. But in terms of processes, I think I just really, because of my determination, and then when I got the the cooperation of the band and, and was able to work with them just kind of took on this positive vibe for me. And I did in terms of approach, I think just try to, I initially just went chronologically or I wanted to get all the facts straight and just get all the story out there in one place. But, but the beginning as the chap, chapter one of the book starts with the story of, of the horse song and my analysis of what that means or what that meant for society and culture when that came out and the reflection of, of the song content onto the reflecting the 1960s experience that I, I, I really tried to tap into the, you could call it, you know, the, this spiritual world has maybe negative or, or lighter connotations, but I like to think that with certain really strong ideas that I have, that it's tapping into this bigger idea whirlpool that the universe is involved in. So I like to think that that initial intensity that the chapter one has, that I saw the band as kind of bringing culture from the late 60s into the 70s and translating those ideas across decades, that that was this kind of bigger idea that I was just being able to art articulate. So it wasn't a necessary, wasn't a direct process or it wasn't such a conscious thing, but that's how I like to think of it. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the road. Tell me how long you're gonna stay here, Joe. Some people say this town don't look good in the snow. You don't care, I know. Venture Highway in the sunshine Where the days are longer, the nights are stronger than moonshine You're gonna go, I know Well, it's interesting you said you went into it with a journalistic, you know, not a shock value kind of mindset right that you weren't looking to expose some dark, dirty secret behind right. it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but exactly. rather tell their story, yeah. And you mentioned in the book, and you make a, a point of the fact that America, like maybe only a, another handful of bands, don't really have that superstar lead singer breakout, you know, personality. Um, 
did that come through in your interviews uh, with the two members? Yes, I think that's one of the most compelling um, elements of their band identity um, and what makes them what I call the, the logo bands that were popular uh, in the 70s, like Chicago and Steve Miller Band and America, where they have this notable lo logo that most people at the time anyway were, were very familiar with, didn't necessarily know the, the story of each band member behind that. Um, and there's an article that I, that I quote in the book that Cameron Crowe actually wrote for the LA Times, I think it was 75, where he interviews the band members and they express their kind of disgruntled that um, they're, while they have this huge band identity and a lot of success, they don't have that personal artistic um, persona identity as that matches the, the bands. So that's an interesting element going on. And, but I think too, the idea of a band, this theoretical democratic organization, the way America went about it with sharing songs, sharing lead vocals and being pretty even that way is a nice um, testament to that goal of, of being this group you know, and really acknowledging all of that while all these talented artists are together, it's the, the power of the group that really holds, holds true. Mm -hmm. And I noticed in the acknowledgements, you had a chance to talk to Robert Lamb of Chicago. Uh, you mentioned them as one of the logo bands. Did, did he share that feeling of the anonymity of the individual members? Actually, yeah, I didn't get to, unfortunately, didn't get to talk to him directly. That was oh. more of, um, it was like a written out sort of exchange, but I, I would yeah. like to ask him about that because I think it's a very similar sort of thing. Um, and Robert Lamb, I did get to work with Jerry Beckley again. I mean, they've been friends and musical partners here and there, but in, uh, in the 90s, the Beckley Lamb Wilson project is also an interesting musical album that was done with Carl Wilson also, um, and that's addressed in the book. So it reminded me of these three group members like Carl of the Beach Boys, Robert Lund of Chicago, and Jerry of America coming together to do this super group sort of thing. But they were all from similar sort, sorts of bands. So I would like to ask him more about that. And getting back to the process of it all, you know, from the standpoint of piecing then all the individual, I'm sure it was not all done in one sit down. Uh, <laughs> how, did you, how did you string the series of interviews, begin to piece it together? Yes, that was definitely interesting. I just imagine when you were saying it that way, doing like an all-nighter. Yeah. <laughs> just put it all together in one night and send it off. Yeah. Um, like in just transcribe the interviews. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, that in itself, and I learned, I had been doing transcribing for one-off articles, interviews with people that, of course, never took that long. But then doing so many interviews for this project and so many different people, the transcribing takes so much time, just out in terms of number, number of hours. Um, so that was good for me to experience, to just acknowledge that that's going to be a huge part of what you're doing with this long-term project, not just the creative writing part. But yeah, choosing from certain interviews, I tried to organize some of them for myself by, um, by year, but also by theme and, and topic. And that helped when I went back and had to, and wanted to take bits from, from different um, interviews. And I tried to, when I did get to do the interviews with Jerry and Dewey of America, who I got to interview many times, tried to keep each one to a certain album or certain era, not jump around too much because that that would have been too too wild for me. And were there any, you know, as a journalist writing about the music, do you find that your own taste in music influences that? Or you try to, you know, sort of rise above the genre of the music and uh, analyze it from that standpoint? That's a great question. I think personally, even though there, the idea of being a, a music writer, reviewer, or just an art reviewer involves being a music critic or art critic. And, and I don't really enjoy that much writing about um, 
work I don't like. I, I don't really have a have a sharp tongue that way. I know there are some critics who enjoy, you know, picking apart a work or just and and sometimes that can be very intelligent stuff and and interesting. But I usually just write about what what I like because I like to expand in a positive way about what's already there or just kind of take it into these new corners of discussion. And one of my favorite writers, probably my favorite music writer is Grell Marcus, who wrote this great book, Mystery Train, and he's written other books. But that was where, when I read that book, I really felt that, and that came out in the 70s, but um, that, oh, you can be a music writer or just a writer who's writing about different bands, and you can mention, you know, Led Zeppelin and, you know, Herman Melville or something in the same sentence. I wouldn't necessarily pair those two together, but you can bring in literature and history and, and interlace that with the story of rock and roll that that rock and roll history is of the same theoretical import as, as great works of literature and stuff. And I like thinking about it that way. And also for me, when I, I love analyzing an album and I love analyzing songs, I'm a big lyric person. And I like to try to learn just from my own perspective, more about human nature and relationships and emotional storylines from that. So I enjoyed doing that when I got to analyze a lot of America's music, which a lot of it is more of the emotional side. It's not so, um, complicated in storylines and stuff it's more about people which which makes it more timeless in my opinion it's not so of its particular year or something but more just from the human human story and the lyrics have a lot of uh, potential implications or interpretations yes i i enjoy that and it's up for grabs so it always makes for good discussion yeah if you have nerdy friends who like to do that (laughs) there you go (laughs) Uh, and and it's funny you you said that you like the lyrics because i I caught from the style of your writing because you you weave the lyrics into the story. It's like, well, yeah. as their song says, da da da, you know. And so right. it, uh, it really came across. Yeah, oh, but the, the fact that you said that you weren't writing it from nostalgia, uh, I hadn't met you personally until today, but I do see you were born after most of these albums. Were <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, just to paint the picture for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one grisly rock and roll person on this podcast. <laughs> but the, the fact that you weren't pining about the first time you listened to the Homecoming album, first track to last track, you know, right. you had to turn it over. And what were the songs on the first side? And what were the songs on the second side? I, I right. guess I could tell from the writing. However, you did. I mean, I've always liked America, but you, it did encourage me to go back and listen to it again. Um, yes. Because there are these top 10 mentality, you know, it's like, well, well of course we know 10 Man and uh, Ventura Highway and Horse With No Name. But right. the other tracks, it's like, oh, I forgot about that one. And, you know, I used to really like that, but it's never been on the radio, so I, I forgot about it. Uh, right. And that was part of one of my, I'm so glad that, that, that you felt that way too, because that was part of my, my goal in writing this was to show people to point them past and especially people younger too who might only come across a greatest hits record or something to encourage them to go through to these records and really listen to the whole album as listening experiences this is for all the lonely people thinking that life has passed them by don't give up until you drink from the silver and ride that highway in the sky. 
Patrick, the, their third record is my favorite of theirs. And to me, it's almost, it feels like listening to a Beatles record. I know that's a big, you know, they're it as rock music is concerned, but just the way in which the album was designed, how there are, it wasn't just made for, for hits and then throw in some other songs on there. It has a high complexity to it that I, I think people don't necessarily think of initially with America, like, like we said there. They go to the hits first, but they're really good album makers as, as artists. So that's worth spending time with. And, and with their influences being the Beatles and the Beach Boys and such, did they have this concept album in mind? Like we really want to do something that has some sort of a tie or a theme or a story. Yes, I think, I mean, when they when they started working on, on Hat Trick, I think they really did want to make a bit of a, not necessarily more serious album, but more more of a complex album with different layered songs especially like the, the title track on that album, Hat Trick, um, involves all three band members and writers in there putting together these, you know, more complex bits of songs. And, and it's a longer song. It's more of a suite. And I thought that was pretty neat for them. But what's interesting, what we were talking about the Beatles right after they finished Hat Trick, which they had had not trouble, but just it was a lot of work producing themselves and trying to make more of a complex record like they did. But it did encourage them to seek an outside producer for the fourth record. And they actually ended up working with George Martin, who had produced the Beatles for such a long time. And then they ended up working with him for many albums after that. So it carried forward that Beatles legacy in that way, too. Well, could I ask you to read a passage of the book? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Let me just find something. I do like the beginning. It sets the scene, so maybe I'll just read a little bit. So the the first chapter is called The Song, and it starts off with at the point where the band is working on the song, The Horse With No Name. The single wasn't right. That much was clear. Warner Brothers had listened to the final version of America's self-titled debut album and its proposed first single. I Need You was a ballad by Jerry Beckley, who, as a pop composer and unrelenting romantic, was on the path to becoming Uncle Sam's Paul McCartney. The song encapsulated the 19-year-old's delicate dance between innocence and experience, acknowledging the earnestness of romantic curiosity with an unmistakable undertone of sex appeal. I Need You was set indoors, where Jerry's writerly character would reside for the majority of his artistic life. The song's theme was what Lennon and McCartney had dubbed the word in their 1965 song on Rubber Soul, and in 1967 had declared to be all you need. A generation of young people had recently seized the word in their quest to redefine what mattered for society and for culture, what was important, and just how far and in how many different directions it could fly. It was something that the cumulative youth ideology of the recently closed decade had assumed for its main tenet. It was something thought to have been the answer, love. But it was 1971 now. The Beatles had broken up. The 60s were literally and in many ways figuratively over. The year 1969 had witnessed the manifestation of the decade's full potential and the freedom-laden beauty of Woodstock. But it had also witnessed its seeming demise in the heinous murders by the Manson family, as well as the ill-fated Altamont Free Concert on what Rolling Stone magazine would call rock and roll's all-time worst day. Disappointment was palpable. Malaise and indifference threatened. A widespread sense of trust in freedom had been violated. What would happen to love? Where would it go? Who would reclaim it? Jerry Beckley would, at least for his own band, America. We used to laugh. We used to cry. We used to bow our heads then. Wonder why. Now you're gone. I guess I'll carry on. Best of what you've left to me. Left 
does set the scene so well because I always imagined anyway that America was more of a mid-70s kind of a band right and I, so I never really saw them as this pivot from late 60s Woodstock Beatles to, but that they're all there in that place and that the the mantle is there to be picked up to carry into the 70s and I thought that that's that setup was just perfect so thanks for sharing that passage that's great and did they did the band did Jerry and Dewey see themselves as picking up the baton in any way? That's an interesting question. I don't know if that would be their go-to. I think it's hard too when it's your own life to view yourself necessarily in that historical way. I think it took an outsider to articulate it as such. I know that when I gave them my draft to read for the first time that they responded very well to it, which I was happy about too, because there's a lot of, uh, not personal, but opinion-ish stuff about different albums and songs that they, they did. And they could have taken umbrage with just certain stances I take in the book, but I, that worked out well. And we were on the same page that way, which is great. But yeah, I think maybe it made them reconsider or just try to see themselves in a new light. I know they're very understated humble guys for 70s rock stars, I think. And I hope that this allowed them to see more too of the impact that they've had, the cultural impact. And while maybe they've had more of a milder tale in the history of, of rock and roll, that they still have such a valuable part to play and they're still playing it out. But I hope that they were able to maybe take themselves a little more seriously, even reading certain things about their albums here, because they were never overly um, critis uh, criticized. They weren't written about that much after their initial success in terms of you know, deep album analyses, and especially with their later 70s records and 80s stuff. I mean, the success was acknowledged, but, you know, the critics didn't get too obsessed with, with them that way. And I think they could have, but there was also so much going on at the time. You consider different movements when, when punk and new wave started going, and that was a whole scene and, and great, a great scene, but, but you might not, your attention might be taken away from milder their acts like this. And in fact, just calling them this kind of mild act and in the uh, preface, Billy Bob Thornton talks about these soft rock groups, you know, the Americas and Bread, Seals and Crops, yes. you know, people like this that all of a sudden now just get one little corner of probably just the satellite, I was going to say radio, but just satellite radio. And But back in the day, Top 40 was Top 40. And as right. Billy Bob Thornton says, you know, you heard Deep Purple uh, at the same time you heard Bread. So and right. they say back to back. So it was a, a different kind of a time, maybe. Yes, I, I love thinking about it that way, especially being someone who, who views a lot of earlier work from the 70s, has to view it from a historical perspective. Um, my parents are always saying that too. My dad takes note. I've mentioned now and then Yacht Rock, the idea of that <laughs> new category that was created for you know late 70s, early 80s, smooth kind of pop rock that came out. And my parents were like, we, you know, we didn't call it that. We don't like calling it that now. It's not, it's so much bigger than that. And mentioning how all these different kinds of songs, Motown, rock, funk stuff, singer-songwriter material, like you're saying, all was kind of played at the same time, especially in those earlier years in the 70s. So to be aware of, of labeling things too much soft rock program. Because certainly, I mean, yeah, the, uh, 
the urban legend about horse with no name. Oh, it's about drugs. It's about heroin. Right. It, I, I'm not sure my parents liked me listening to America. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Straight bad. Yeah, they were. I mean, they are cool, and and they were considered cool when they when they came out at, at that time. Even though the song wasn't about drugs, you know, intentionally at all. Yes. Um, but yeah, they they were a cool band, not just the soft rock act. That's right. Well, let's talk about some of your other work. When you're doing these shorter form artist profiles, what kind of process do you approach it there? Saying, well, I've got basically a page versus uh, an entire book. Well, what I like about doing artist interviews and knowing that it's going to be published as such, for the Vinyl District, I write, I write a lot of those um, half of the work or a lot of the work for me is done in, in preparing the questions for the interview and then of course what happens during what the artist says and some spur of the moment elements that may come up uh, that are interesting potentially but um, once the questions are written for me I put a lot of attention into that and, and energy sometimes too <laughs> in the past I had spent too much time personally wording questions a certain way imagining them or knowing that they would be printed and then some of that I found out when I was first starting was a bit cumbersome and conversation didn't feel so natural so I learned to try to get a nice balance between that but yes so once the interview's done I consider the piece almost done and I just have to add in this this beginning part and I have a bit of a formula for that that I use just a certain flow of what's mentioned in certain paragraphs and intro line and then that goes into the interview that I kind of rely on that I found works. Great. Well, some of the listeners of the podcast are beginning developing their craft in this area or starting their career, wanting to take it to the next level. What do you tell people who say this sounds like an area of journalism they'd really like to pursue? I encourage them to definitely move forward on that um, and to listen to what they naturally like in terms of which albums, artists, stories, to trust their instincts that way. Because I've always mostly liked older music that happened, that came out before I was born. It wasn't always the hippest thing to like in my age group with certain younger people I would talk to in college and stuff. It wouldn't be in necessarily, but I try to listen to what I was naturally drawn to. And there's something about the color of older music or music from the 60s and 70s that the, the tone and color of the, a lot of the material that came out that I really identify with. And, and that was something I liked to trust. And I think that my writing about work that came out in that period, I like better more than some other you know newer movies that I've written about and stuff, um, which is interesting, but just definitely I would advise to, to stay true to yourself. Also to just kind of get out there I started reviewing um, material in college, I think, films and, and, and books, and I would just reach out to different publications I liked and undergraduate journals, stuff like that, and just not for payment, just to be able to write. And, and I got used to doing that kind of thing. So helpful too. And I realized it wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, you go out and, and look for a job as a full-time writer and just, you know, you get hired and just start working. It wasn't like that. It still isn't like that for me. It's definitely more of a creative lifestyle. It's not um, typical. So that took a, a bit of getting used to in, in my mind. Once I understood it would be more like that, you can get into that part of it too. And what about some of the other areas like the audiobook? of your America book just came out. How do you pursue these other, what, executions of the content? 
Well, I mean, in terms of the audiobook, I, I was intent upon, or I wanted one to come out about, because I myself like audiobooks. Um, I know a lot of people nowadays, especially with having less and less free time, theoretically, people listen to audiobooks while they're doing other things, working on, on stuff. So it's a nice outlet or nice medium to, to have available. So I felt fortunate when that worked out pretty easily with my publisher. That was nice. But I would encourage writers, yes, if, if they're fortunate enough to, to publish something, or even if they self-publish a, a work, if they can try to work out an audio element of it that you do reach a lot of I imagine you reach a lot of other uh, new new people so that's that's worth pursuing especially nowadays and Jude uh, what's next for you what's next a uh, project that you're looking forward to um I'm I'm working on on different ideas um developing different things I've been pursuing a couple of, of rock book projects this this year since since the spring and those are it's always a bit of a long journey at the beginning with negotiating with an artist and, and lining up and then, you know, organizing a, or tr- seeking a publishing deal. So that's, I'm, I'm involved in that. Personally, writing-wise, I'm trying to stay fresh. I've been doing some artist interviews to stay in touch with what's going on now. Um, also, just to keep that writing skill up. So I hope to have another book coming out in the next two years. I can't detail the content of that yet, but I hope to be able to announce that soon. But it's it's very exciting. Actually, that was where I met Marcus Eaton, who's this great artist, which is how, how we met. But I got to interview him for the Vinyl District, and that was how we hooked up that way. And, and yes. he's such a great artist. That was a nice thing. You know, meeting the artist, too, is such a nice element of of doing interviews and getting to befriend people that way. Yes, exactly. And make those connections. Now you do have a book chapter coming out next year, right? Yes. There's an anthology about the band coming out called Rags and Bones, a multidisciplinary approach to the, the band. And that's hopefully coming out next year, I think through You Miss Press. And my chapter is about the Stage Fright album by the band. And it's an analysis of that record. So I really enjoyed working on that. And I got to talk to um, John Sheely, who worked with the band at the time of that record. So there's, I felt grateful to be able to have some firsthand knowledge of that too, or just being able to speak to him about it. I got to meet him through, I'm friends with Daniel Rower, who directed the great film Once We're Brothers, the Robbie Robertson documentary that came out last year. So that was another surprise element for me of, of that process. But the book does come out soon, and I would encourage band fans to, to check it out because it's definitely worth looking at. Yeah, I guess on both sides of this business, writing about this, the rock artists and, and becoming the artists themselves. I mean, you keep hearing about these connections. I think about the creative types aren't always the ones to put ourselves out there, you know, to do that networking and build the Rolodex yes. and get our contacts and that sort of thing. What advice do you have from your experience in that area? Yes, you're right about the penchant of a lot of the artistic personalities to go inward and and not seek outside influence, which sometimes is good. But yes, you do need that networking element, which I've learned to do more. Again, personally, I would say I try to follow instincts like people I happen to get along with, like certain artists I definitely do just naturally click with when I'm doing an interview with them, like happened with Marcus. Um, That was so great. Just we you meet certain artists if you get to meet them and certain people that just kind of feel like home when you start talking to them and, and the language that you're using to exchange ideas with each other. So that's what happened with Marcus, which was so great. That networking was kind of natural is what I mean. 
in terms of conscious networking, I mean, I'm good at just emailing, cold, cold calling, cold emailing people um, whose podcasts I like or whose radio shows I like. Now that I have something out, it's it's nice to be able to use my book as a way of, you know, this is what we could talk about if we get to talk on your wonderful show. So that makes it easier. Before that, I do remember emailing, you know, sending my work out a lot to different literary journals and stuff, different magazines trying to get that going but that can be a bit um, I mean it's worth doing but it can be disappointing sometimes it's not hearing it doesn't mean that you're not good or that you don't have something to offer it just has to click right place right time right person so I would encourage people to not give up if they're not hearing back or not not hearing what they want just to keep going with their original vision while also trying to find people that they click with in the art world. Well, that's great encouragement. Well, thank you, Jude. What a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed getting to know you and your work better. I enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate you you spending time with my book and, and getting into it. That's really cool. Yeah, well, I can't wait to finish it and listen to all my America albums all over again with a new <laughs> appreciation. Thanks to you. Folks, my guest has been Jude Warren. She's a rock biographer and a music reviewer. Her newest book is America, the Band, an Authorized Biography. It's got a forward by Billy Bob Thornton, and it's got liner notes and blurbs from all sorts of some of these uh, Yacht Rock folks that we've been talking about, <laughs> Michael McDonald and Christopher Cross, lots of other good people too. So it's yes. been wonderful to talk to you. How can we stay connected with you and follow your work? Well, you can regularly look at my website if you wish. I put everything I write that comes out up there. It's www.judewarren.com. I'm also on Instagram, Jude Warren Writer is my tag name out there. And I do put up information about different stuff I have coming out, like the audiobook and, and, and different reviews that come in. So it's nice to connect that way too. Yes. Well, indeed. And Jude, uh, you're reminding me, this is how one of the ways we connected after Marcus introduced us. I stalked you on Instagram for a while. So, you know, <laughs> following and being resilient and then finding that line between that and stalking. I think that's right. what I was, I was looking for that balance. <laughs> it worked. It was a good balance. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the program. Again, my guest, Jude Warren. It's judewarren.com. Well, thanks everybody for stopping by the podcast. We've been unlocking your world of creativity and that unlocking has so many different keys. You've got to have the talent to begin with, but you've got to sustain the craft, reach out to the people, make those connections, and then carry it through all the way to the production. And we appreciate Jude's insights, experience, and advice on that. So come back next time. We'll get more insight on creative thinking. We'll get more experiences from other creative experts around the world. And we'll help you unlock your world of creativity. Bye for now. Unlocking your world of creativity with Mark Stinson. Today's episode was inspired by 12th Fret Music. When you are searching for anything related to musical instruments, you want a music store that cares about the songs, not just the gear. And Rob Bridgeway and the staff over at 12th Fret Music is just that kind of store. 12th Fret Music has been in business for more than 20 years. They specialize in guitar and amp repairs, and they have a growing selection of new, used, and vintage instruments. So give a call to Rob Ridgeway at 12th Fret Music, where they make your music sound great. I'm Mark Stenson. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or check out my website at www.mark-stinson.com. Thanks for listening. Ain't it far?